Good afternoon, patriots. Welcome to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today I'll talk about my first conservative club meeting and the impressions it left on me and what we need to do going forward. And I'll talk about why Cuomo put the sick COVID patients back into nursing homes prematurely. All next on Living with Liberty. Local activism is where we will make our progress. Taking back school boards, local municipal boards, city councils, and county boards are how we turn the tide in regaining our government as one for the people, by the people. I recently joined my town's conservative club and attended my first meeting this past Tuesday night. Those are the kinds of groups where local organization is going to start. We need to band together locally and get everybody moving in the same direction. Our group, I would say, from my initial impressions, is a well-organized group. Now, all the attention is on Fort D.C. and the Three Rings Circus there. And yes, they are trying to federalize everything, and yes, we should not ignore that. But we need to ask ourselves, how did we get to the point that Washington is so emboldened to push through such radical ideas and agendas in the first place? The answer is, it's been the takeover of local boards and local politics by radical ideologues. We were so distracted by the dysfunction and truthfully the overemphasized importance of Washington politicians that we lost sight of our local politics. Our governance structure is set up such that the federal government is limited in scope and power. Years of both the federal government chipping away at states' rights and the states letting them by taking federal bribes disguised as budgetary gap closers has led us to where we are today. What we conservatives and liberty lovers of all stripes really need to get better at is organizing and rallying as a team. I noticed that this was a common theme in my conservative group as we talked and strategized. One member gave a presentation on what we need to be looking at from an election integrity standpoint and taking those points and pushing our elected officials at the state level to put through reform bills that encompass things that are going to protect our elections, things that are going to prevent all the abnormalities and issues we saw this time around in in 2020 here. At the beginning of her presentation, and again at the end, she had a quote of which I will give you the essence of what it was. Uh, The basic premise of, of the quote was that we are going to disagree at times, even though we are on the same team. The important thing is to put those differences and disagreements aside at the end of the day and move forward as one unit. We don't want to go off and do our own thing just because our idea didn't make it or we have a disagreement on on policy and things like that. We we need to be banded together as a one team and moving forward as as one team. If we are going to take back our country, we need to heed this advice. Healthy conflict is good. Different ideas and perspectives 
are needed to round out any plan or policy to make it the best it can be. But there comes a time that forward progress needs to be made, and the consensus decision on what we should move ahead with is what we need to rally around and, and charge forth with. You know, pride gets in the way of that sometimes. We all have great ideas. We're all smart people. And we want our ideas implemented. We want to feel like uh, our idea had something to do with the, the greater good. And truthfully, it does, even if it's not your idea that was exactly into implemented. But we need to be good with letting that go at some point once a consensus is made and unify around what our common purpose is. Plans are nothing. Planning is everything, Eisenhower once said. Both are irrelevant if we don't move ahead. You can have the greatest plans and do the greatest planning in the world, but if you don't move ahead with anything, then uh, both those things really weren't worth the time that you put in. We will need to be ready to adjust on the fly as we work through our plans and implement and execute our plans. We will need to be organized with our plans to counteract what Democrats are trying to do. They're not just going to sit back and let us implement our plans and try and move forward with what we think is the best direction for the country. They have their own ideologies, which is apparent in just the uh, socialist nature of how they're talking these days. We have to be ready to counteract that. And we, again, as conservatives, we may disagree over the exact strategy and execution of those plans. But at the end of the day, if we're going to move forward, we have to come to a consensus on the best plan moving forward and the best way to execute it. And then we have to rally behind that and be one team. The other thing here is we need to be raising our kids up in the truth particularly if they are going to the indoctrination facilities called schools. If your kids go to public schools, then it is critical to talk to them about the uh, conservative values and, and how important those values and ideas are, that really the conservative values and, and just conservative, conservatism in general means that we are preserving our constitutional liberties and freedoms for all citizens, not just a subset like we're seeing the Democrats try and pull here with equity and equality and whatever else. But we want to preserve our rights for everyone. And we also want to preserve the traditional norms of our society and culture, i.e. things like Christmas and Thanksgiving. Uh, a mom and a dad in the household. The the fact that no matter what Democrats say, science says there's only two genders. Things like that. Make sure they understand that anything outside of these norms are a fringe ideology that really is not representative of the vast majority of, of our American society. With your kids, you have to be fighting on two fronts if they are in public schools. Now, the first one I just mentioned on educating them at home on conservative values, and truthfully these days, probably our, our American history and our Constitution as well. And the second piece of this here is uh, fighting the school system itself. It's incumbent upon parents to push back 
and push this ideology out of schools that is false and get their schools back to teaching kids how to think, not what to think. Get back to these schools teaching good American-centric curriculum that teaches our values and cultures, not some fringe ideology. Parents with kids in public schools, you have to fight on two fronts. And and truthfully, in in listening to Dan Bongino's podcast from a couple days ago, even some of those elite private schools, parents need to fight on those fronts as well. And I get it. If if you can afford to send your kid to school, but you're that concerned about the ideology, you might want to think about pulling them out. I don't care how elite a school it is. If it's destroying your kid, it's not worth it. Now, it's also important that as your kids get into their teenage years, and if they start to show some interest in current events, and they start forming opinions and talking to you about those opinions and about those current events, you know, get them involved in your local conservative group or, you know, get a, have them start a local group, maybe help, help you start a local group. Now, my group's meeting, there was a gentleman who brought his eighth grade daughter to the meeting. I, I thought that was really cool. And she seemed really engaged in, in what was going on and had some good things to say. And my teenage son of, uh, has, has been showing interest in, and has been expressing opinions on the happenings of the world and current events as well. I plan on bringing him to our next meeting if, if he wants to go, that is. He, sometimes, you know how teenagers get sometimes for you, those, uh, those with teenagers out there. Um, you know, we're, we're really looking at the left has, has taken over our schools and we have not done a good job in combating the ideological nonsense that these kids are learning in schools that this, uh, un-American curriculum is pushing in schools and they're just by our inaction, they're getting bolder and bolder with it. You know, th- we let our kids go through these public schools and we don't talk to them a ton about our conservative values and and why we hold them and so dear and why we have a constitution you know if we we're not talking to them about the uh, talking to them while they're young about those things we then spend years trying to reach them uh and others that have been indoctrinated into the leftist ideology and sometimes we're successful on converting them and driving that ideology out and showing them the light, so to speak. And sometimes we're not. And, and the reason we're not, uh, it's apparent now that we, we've maybe not been, uh, we've been unsuccessful more than we've been successful. Getting kids involved early will have a much more lasting effect. It's easier than if you teach them right out of the gate or or instill those values right out of the gate, then there's there's no reason. Those are their their beliefs, and truthfully, their beliefs held in uh, held in truth. They're based on our constitution. They're based on actual science. They're based on our history. You know, they're based in logic. Once you get someone thinking in in a logical fashion, it, I find it's really hard to get them going the other way. I think it's the struggle has been when they uh, when they don't aren't presented with thinking in a logical way and they think in 
utopian ideas and buy into the lies and the nonsense pushed by politicians and mainstream media, that's a lot harder to to break through, I think. So the the earlier we get started on that, the earlier that we're in, able to instill those values of truth and the the fact that our constitution is you know is is our guiding document for law and order in this country that you know science the real science is uh you can't change biology etc that the earlier we start that the better off we are we have less work to do and can focus on the the real task at hand and that's beating back fringe ideologies you know as we go through this uh getting our kids in, involved early getting them taught early banding together with uh, like-minded individuals forming conservative groups, and we start to build our own educational system. We start to build our own groups. We start to build our own economies, if you will, and we start to build on, into our uh, into our movement our own group of young people, who will, at a much earlier age, carry the banner of conservatism forward. They will reach more of their friends. I think I mentioned. Uh, uh, and a couple shows back about uh, the the high school uh, young lady that was elected to the board of our county GOP uh, party. Uh, she's reaching her friends, and and her statement was most most people her age they don't care, so they're malleable and reachable. They're just going with the flow. Uh, you know, the the earlier we can reach them and and have our kids and reaching their friends who they'll listen to their friends more so than, than us when they get to a certain age, it seems, you know, the, the better off we're going to be. The earlier that uh, our kids see the truth and understand how to think, not what to think, but how to think, how to do critical thinking, the more successful our cause becomes. Kids are like gardens. You have a garden, you have to keep the weeds out in order for your garden to flourish. It's the same thing with our kids' minds. We have to keep the destructive ideology, the weeds of thinking of the left, out of our kids' minds in order to allow them to flourish. Moving on, I, I tell you what, old Andy C. over there in New York, is he's really in a lot of trouble. Double trouble, it seems. But the thing we need to ensure that doesn't get lost is the nursing home scandal because that is what the media is trying to bury right now. Now, the harassment charges or allegations, I should say, uh, are repugnant, no doubt about that. And I hope that they are investigated to the fullest extent that they can be and that these these women coming forward uh, do press charges against them. I, you know, if the, if, if what's being said is warranted, like I said, it's allegations at this point, but I think we're up to six now. Seems like it's a very credible thing in a, a, a pattern. It's not like a Republican uh, went out and dug up some someone, some lady somewhere to to kind of bring these charges. Like um, you know, kind of appears on the front of what the Democrats did with Kavanaugh, amongst others. I mean, this is this is six people coming forward on their own without any coercement. Uh, but that said, we have to ensure those that who lost loved ones in the nursing home scandal get the justice they deserve 
and it, that this thing gets the publicity it needs and deserves. This was horrible. This should never have happened. It should never be allowed to happen. Should have never been allowed to happen. And that this nursing home scandal should not be just swept under the rug in exchange for Cuomo's harassment troubles. That goes for the Wicked Witch of the Midwest, Gretchen Whitmer, and the Wolf of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, as well. Don't let them bury this story. Don't let Whitmer and Wolf hide behind Cuomo's harassment troubles. This story is too important, and it's a story of corruption that needs to be exposed. I have a Federalist piece here titled, The Real COVID Nursing Home Scandal is Why Cuomo and Other Democrats Did It, by Willis Krumholtz and Robert Delahunty. I've also done a little research of my own that we'll sprinkle in here that illustrates why we need to get rid of corporate lobbyists, why we need to ban them from having any uh, influence on politicians on our political system and you know just illustrates another reason why we should all resist the national uh nationalization of health care now the federalist piece illustrates a cover-up of why nursing homes were forced to take covid positive patients in the reason is because of money and i'm sure that comes to no uh, as no surprise to anyone but it goes deeper than that the suggestion by Krumholtz and Delahunty is that the hospital lobby themselves engineered the approach to send COVID-positive patients back into the nursing homes in New York State, among elsewhere, I'm sure, but uh, there, this one tends to focus on uh, New York State, and that the noted Democrat governors we just mentioned were happy to oblige. Now, the official line was that there was a concern for hospital capacity, so the policy was enacted. Yet the states of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Minnesota kept the policy in place until well after the peak of hospitalizations last April. What wasn't widely publicized, but for anyone who has a modicum of common sense can probably reason this out, what doesn't get publicized is that Medicare and Medicaid patients are less profitable than privately insured patients. So hospitals don't want to keep them admitted for any extended length of time. The longer a Medicaid or Medicare patient ties up a hospital bed, the less profitable that hospital will be since they could give that bed to a privately insured patient and really gouge them. More on the facts and figures of exactly how much more profitable privately insured patients are compared to Medicare or Medicaid patients. We'll have more on that in a minute. It was this profitability metric that pushed the nonprofit hospital association, the Greater New York Hospital Association, or GNYHA, to push for this policy of cycling nursing home patients through the hospital as fast as they could and back into the nursing homes, whether they were, uh, you know, fully recovered or not. Now, according to Krumholtz and Delahunty, New York uh, had cut its Medicaid funding, funding due to budget issues, which in turn could have caused hospitals to 
at best, break even, at worst, lose money on COVID patients. Down goes the Medicaid funding and, and then also then down goes hospital profitability. Also, uh, let's not forget here that Cuomo's aides added in a provision to the budget bill giving immunity to healthcare and industry officials on anything COVID related. So that wasn't, you know, that wasn't fishy at all either. And I don't know that there was a lot of due diligence that went a little deeper into why that provision was was thrown in there. I mean, it came to light, uh, you know, as we as things went along here. But um, I, you know, I don't recall a lot being said about that at the time, other than you know that it was really strange that there was immunity granted to these uh, healthcare and and health industry officials. So uh, it as everything time and truth exposes everything, and we now see why. But uh, you know it. Probably lesson there to dig a little deeper on that, uh, you know, for next time. You know, so now I'm I'm sure you're saying right now, oh, this is bad. Lives traded for hospital profits, but how does that really motivate a government official to go along with a policy put forth by a lobbying group to put COVID patients back into the nursing home prematurely? Well, let's look back at the GNYHA. No, they are an influential uh, piece in New York politics, and that's to the tune of a $1 million donation to Cuomo's re-election campaign that was kept secret until after his inauguration. And then we look at uh, kind of the overall uh, landscape here during Cuomo's second term in office, his campaign and the state party, state Democrat party in New York, has taken in over $2.3 million from hospital donors. This is about corrupt dealings with special interests and how it leads to the decisions made by elected officials with those interests in mind as opposed to the well-being of the citizens. Now, Grandma and Grandpa were sacrificed in New York and elsewhere to satisfy a political debt. Elderly people died unnecessarily because lobbyists were allowed to craft a policy that was then backed by their influential donations to political campaigns, specifically here Cuomo's campaign and the, the, the Democrat Party of New York. Now, this could only lead one to reason that this is what caused Andrew Cuomo to think about sending these or creating this policy policy to send uh, nursing home patients uh, or COVID patients back into the nursing homes prematurely, well before they were were recovered. This all came down to him thinking about his political funding and keeping the donors and lobbyists happy. This is case in point why lobbyists should not be allowed to fund political campaigns. These special interests take over. This is what the politicians think about. And in this case, this is what costs the lives of many elderly citizens that otherwise may have survived had proper measures been implemented. It would have been as simple as waiting until these these patients were recovered before they put them back in the nursing homes or just not putting them in the nursing homes to begin with if they weren't in the nursing home. This is an illustration 
in why campaigns should only be funded by the citizenry. And in in the case of state offices, only the citizens of that state should be funding candidates. There's too much outside money and outside influence coming into these candidates. These for-profit lobbyists, are I'm sure they register as non-profit, but they are representing some for-profit industry. They should not be allowed to fund campaigns, period. Politicians become too beholden to their corporate donors and not the people who actually elect them. Now, the other disturbing revelation here is that hospitals, which exist to help people in times of illness, and the doctors working in those hospitals who are supposed to do no harm, also put profit over the needs of the ill. Nobody in healthcare raised a flag in New York or these other states to say that this really wasn't a good idea. Nobody pushed back and said, no, we aren't going to do this. What doctor does that? What doctor, after all the hoopla and all the the media hysteria and the don't the the Tony Fauci hysteria and Deborah Burks and everyone else about this virus and how bad it was, why didn't anybody raise a flag to say this is a horrible idea? Now, were these doctors in the in the uh, New York uh, uh, healthcare industry here? Were they told by hospital administrators to toe the company line, and that company line was? We don't get enough from these Medicare patients. Put them back as soon as we in the nursing homes as soon as we can. This to me, it, uh, this concerns me. It should concern you. The fact that if you are not a profitable enough patient, a hospital is just going to cut you off in terms of care. They could cut a loved one off in terms of care, like they did to these poor families in New York. They aren't going to give you the best advice medic- medically if you're if you don't have the right insurance. If you are nothing but a dollar sign to them, they're going to give you what they can. And that's not from a medical standpoint, that isn't going to hurt their profitability. That should be in the back of your mind from now on. Am I getting the best care and advice possible? Or is there a profit play here because of my insurance plan? Now, this should also be of a major concern from a government run healthcare front. This whole nursing home situation, in my mind, is a preview of what would happen should government be allowed to take over our health care. Don't think for one second that if the government had control over health care, they wouldn't put policies in place for doing something to this effect. There's a limited amount of money that you know that that that's budgeted for for healthcare, for Medicare, Medicaid. There's only so much. That's why they dictate how much they're going to pay hospitals and there's no negotiation. Now, don't think for a second that a government health uh, plan isn't going to do this and over time is going to erode our healthcare system even more in this country, that we're not going to get the best care, period, no matter what. This would, they, they wouldn't hesitate for a second to make a call to deny care to the stick to the sickest and statistically least likely to survive when it came to those that have a major medical condition don't think for a second at this point that they wouldn't pull the plug on you if you weren't likely to survive don't think for a second that there should be you know if we have another pandemic 
that the government wouldn't make the call to stuff ill patients in nursing homes again. These are the reasons why we cannot allow government to take over our health care. And the reason we cannot let the story be swept under the rug. It's corruption. It's lobbyists having undue influence over politicians and then them politicians listening to their donors over what's good for the people. We, now going forward, have to be the voice for those who Cuomo and our other governor friends out there who did the same thing, that, you know, decided that these elderly had little value to society and stuffed the nursing homes full of sick people. We need to not let this die. We need to keep it to the front, uh, to the forefront here of, of our thinking and our uh, activism and keep pressing on for justice for these, uh, you know, these un, un, uh, unfortunate souls that, that um, had to endure this and those families that lost loved ones way too soon. Now, sometimes uh, my shows take a little bit of an unexpected turn, and what I thought I'd be able to sprinkle in doesn't get sprinkled in all the time. So I wanted to end with this research on Medicare that I had found. It uh, boils down to payout rates and, and why we need to understand them. It, it, they're important to understand because there's a, a chasm in the payout rates of between Medicare and private insurance, which I'm sure, again, is no... Uh, no new news to anybody out there, but this is, you know, tying it back to to the nursing home scandal. This is what drives hospital decisions. It's what drove the decisions by these governors to to put these sick people in nursing homes. It's it's what drove these lobbyist groups to craft the policy to do this. And you know, my hope is that what I present here will tie everything together. Now, I'll link the research article. Uh, in the description box, it's it's an interesting one, and it's interesting in that it illustrates the explosion in private insurance rates as compared to Medicare, which has really stayed flat in terms of its payouts over the the course of the years. And I, uh, the, the research goes back to about 2014. Medicare has been flat to sometimes negative in terms of growth and payouts. Well, we've just had an explosion in in uh, private insurance payouts, which you know, in turn leads to an explosion in our deductibles and explosion in what comes out of our pocket every week or biweekly or monthly, however, you know, you, you take care of your health insurance premiums. Now, looking at this for COVID patients uh, that were in hospitals, those hospitals uh, with or those COVID patients with private insurance uh, had 2.1 to 2.5 times more reimbursement to the hospitals, the private insurance, than the Medicare payouts. Now, that is a huge disparity and definitely drives behavior on the hospital ends. If, if you're going to be presented with two choices and one of those is, hey, I, I can get, you know, two to two and a half times more um, profitability or, or payment out of out of uh, option one versus option two, how, how do I get option one, right? This is a behavior driving thing here when you're talking about numbers like that. Now, I want to translate that into dollars here for a second. If we're looking at patients who were on ventilators for more than 96 hours, the private insurance payment uh, 
reimbursements were $60,000 more than the Medicare reimbursements on average. So looking at that, private insurance payout for people on ventilators, patients on ventilators, more than 96 hours, averaged $100,460 versus Medicare's payout of $40,220. Now, how much does it actually cost to keep a patient on a ventilator? How much of what we see billed out to private insurance is to make up for lost revenue from the, the Medicare payouts? That's a huge disparity in payouts for the same service. And actual hospital costs and actual hospital charges seem to be a bit of a mystery. They, they don't have a board like a fast food restaurant when you walk in uh, of all the services they offer and, and what it costs. We don't know what their actual charge is. We just see the, the statement of benefits from our insurance companies. And some of them, I look at them, I'm like, how can that be that much? You know, are we, and I think some of it boils down to this. We are, we're looking at such a disparity in, the, in just the example I just gave, 60 grand between for, for the same, same service. Patients on a, having the exact same treatment, yet there's a disparity of 60 grand in the reimbursement just based on the insurance. You know, what this looks like to me is, is you know, we're the private sector insurance, it, we're paying for another broken government program. We're paying a tax on, uh, you know, the, the failures of Medicare here. Now, the final piece here as it relates to COVID is there was a provision stuck into the CARES Act that Trump you know, let's be fair, Trump, you know, signed in the CARES Act. There was a provision in there that also drove bad behavior. And this, I think, you could tie back to driving up some of the, just the, the ridiculous um, causes of death being COVID. You know, we, okay, someone was in a car accident and died, but they died of COVID. I mean, this, this here is, you know, might explain some of, some of that just, absurdity is probably the best way to put it. So in that CARES Act, there was a provision to reimburse hospitals for inpatient Medicare participants an extra 20%. So if, if, if you were in that car accident, you died and you were a Medicare participant, uh, and we're during the pandemic here, why wouldn't a hospital just say you died of COVID to get that extra 20% on the Medicare? They're already breaking even to losing money. They might as well try and turn a profit on it. So that, that, that provision here drove, you know, drove a lot of bad behavior here. And there really wasn't a, you know, they kind of washed their hands of the, the diagnosis then either. And, and, you know, 20% during this, this COVID public health emergency for the hospitals, an extra 20% just drives horrible, but just, Drove a horrible behavior, in my opinion, here. And now, you know, if we think about it and knowing what we know about COVID patients, they they tended to be older, tended to be on Medicaid or Medicare anyway. You know, this provided incentives for hospitals to diagnose as many people as they could with COVID to get that extra 20%. Kind of what I mentioned before, even breaking it down to those who had no symptoms or or indications of even having the, the disease. But yet, you know, let, let's write them down as a COVID so we can get that extra 20%. You know, getting that extra 20%, again, comes down to profitability, comes down to the bottom line. 
you know, we look at this, we follow the Monday money, and we'll find out what's really going on. We follow the money, we can predict how policies may be implemented. Anytime an incentive is given in dollars, it will drive a behavior, and that in turn could have a detrimental effect on society. Pushing for lobbyists and campaign finance reforms should be in the hopper of changes we propose to our legislature, legislators. Uh, after we get through pushing through election reform, cancel culture reform or cancel culture elimination and, and school reform. You need to get those three big things taken care of first. But, you know, ne next out of the shoot to me and looking at what we see here is how do we get the lobbyist and the special interest money out of campaign financing? Now, before I go today, I'd appreciate if you checked out my website and shared it with friends and family. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. All my shows can be accessed from there, as can some resources I've recently added that will guide us or in organizations that are taking the fight to the left, that are standing up for conservative values, that are standing up for election reform, standing up to the federal government. And I'd also be grateful if you left a positive review of this show should your listening platform allow. It'll help us move up the charts and help more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, Let's connect. You can do that by subscribing to my show as well as signing up for notifications. Follow me on social media. My main account is on Parlor. I am at Living with Liberty. I am also on MeWe. Just search for Living with Liberty. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.